Hi, I'm Simone W. Johnson-Smith, and welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America. Are you a professional new to the United States and struggling to monetize the expertise you brought across the seas? Are you feeling misunderstood and out of touch because you're struggling to understand the unstated rules of the American culture? Each week, we'll take an in-depth look at the positive contributions immigrants are making to the American culture, marketplace, and life. Our intention is to serve as a bridge from your culture to the American culture, giving you a roadmap of tools and the language to understand the unstated rules of the American culture. Let's get started. Hello, and thank you for listening to another episode of the Immigrant Experience in America, where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants in the United States. We are elated that we're building a human library of immigrant stories here in the United States. So please hit that subscribe button so that you do not miss an episode. Today we have for you Dr. Kareem Heshlop. Welcome, Dr. Heshlop. Hi, Simone. Thanks for having me. Okay, lovely to have you on the show. Can you tell us a bit about your professional background and what has been going on with you most recently here? Yes, of course. I'm originally from Jamaica. I came to the U.S. in July 2013 for school. Did a Bachelor's of Science in Biology at Claflin University, which is an HBCU in South Carolina. Then immediately moved on to a PhD program at the Medical University of South Carolina, um, where I recently got my PhD in biomedical sciences, May of this year, 2022. Congratulations. Thank you. You mentioned, as we did a little chit-chat earlier, that you were one of the first persons in a program that we call Passport to College. Can you share a little bit about that? Yes, Passport to College was founded by Miss Jean Harris and Mr. Norman Harris. They're a wonderful couple that I think in 2012, they were helping out a student that went to my local high school, uh, Titchfield High School in Portland, Jamaica. And that student was kind enough to share books and materials with me when I was pestering him about, you know, how is he planning to go to college? when it's so expensive and there are limited opportunities and scholarships and so on. And he shared with me that he was planning to go to the U.S. for school. And this lady and her husband was helping him. And then one became two, two became four. And we were the first set of students to come to Claflin University. At the time, it wasn't called Passport to College, the, this program. Um, it was just one person trying to help another. And now we are, I think, more than 100 students um, I've come through Passport to College and moved on to start their tertiary education or moved into workforce after that. Right. That is awesome. And kudos to Miss Jean Harris for putting her time and energy and her husband into helping the over 100 students. That's awesome. Yeah, it all started with her. And then eventually more and more people came on board. There's a huge Jamaican community as well as some Americans and other people that just, you know, saw the cause, thought it was a good thing and then put resources towards it, whether financial or even sometimes it's advice makes a big difference for all the students. Right, right. So I discussed the program with Jean uh, separately, so I, I have a sense for how that is, but that's that's awesome. So how, what was life like for you in Jamaica growing up and going to, you know, Titchfield? For my experience, not so linear but became pretty linear around five years old. When I was little, my 
mom had a lot of us. It was I have eight siblings with my mom, and my dad has some some more of us out there. From there, I grew up with another family, Edgar and Vivia Strand, and my sister Sylvia, who her soul rests in peace. She passed away in 2018, and they raised me from the age of four onward. So I went to Boston Primary School there, and then eventually went to Titchfield High School and did the sciences. While growing up in Boston, I'd say it was a wonderful experience because there's a sense of community. There is this sense that you're going somewhere when you get on a bus to go to school. Everyone looks at students differently, like it's a future for the country a future for everyone involved, including the taxi driver that takes you there. They form a relationship with you and so on. They look out for you. So this sense of community while I was growing up was very strong. I'd say I missed a few things like um, hanging out with friends after school. Didn't do that too much in a disorganized way. It was more around like organized sports or chess or doing some kind of things we call SBA when you're working towards your CSEC exams or external exams in high school. You stick together and try to graph things. But in terms of like, you know, going home and then leaving from the house and just going to another friend's house or going down the street to just, you know, kick around a ball or something, I didn't do much of that. Oh, my condolences about your sister. So it sounds like you're not the oldest then of the siblings. It's weird how we think of siblings. When I think of siblings, I have to, it's like having two minds. So my parents that raised me, the siblings that I have with them, they're older, right? Because my parents are retirees. So yes. Uh, yeah. And their their kids were adults when I was a child. I grew up with Sylvia because she was at home with my parents the whole time. But my brothers, they were in the UK. Now my other siblings from my biological family. I am the third to last child for my mom. Okay. Okay. I see. And, you know, being from Jamaica myself, I understand sometimes this is just how family is blended and how things are. It's just the reality of the world. But what was it like? You know, you mentioned a few things that you would do after school. Can you talk about, I know Portland, the Portland side of the island is different from, let's say, the southern or western side. Right. So what's the food like and culture like in the Portland side of the island? So in Portland, it's known for the home of jerk, right? Jerk pork or jerk chicken. And so the jerk festival that is well known across the world is in Boston, in Portland there. So Boston is like a small district inside of Portland. And so we're known for that. Uh, I've only gone once and I was a child growing up there. Like I said, it was like more of I was in the house. Um, my parents didn't go out too much, only for grocery shopping on a Friday or a Saturday. And they would come back and then spend the rest of the time at home. In terms of exposure to culture, most of that happened when I was in school, like during the school time for me. So if you can imagine, like leave out 7 a.m., catch the bus, get to Port Antonio by 7.45, get in line for assembly before 8, because there's usually assembly. And then everything that's going on in the community or Port Antonio, I would learn about that like from like during the lunch break or uh, in between things in class when my friends are talking or something like that. And then after school, I'd usually be involved in some 
extracurricular activity for a short time. It was table tennis with Samuel Lamont, who's well known there, and or chess. And I like doing that kind of thing. Um, and so all conversations would be with a subset of like the same set of students each day for me because they're involved in those sports or, or those activities. In terms of comparing it to the other parts of the island, I didn't go much to the rest of the island because <laughs> we just kind of stuck to Portland, go to school, make sure you have a good education, come back home, try to stay out of trouble. Okay, thanks for sharing that. And so you shared that you got connected to this person who told you about this program and now you're here in the United States. What was it like through the whole application process through the Passport to College program and how did everything come to light for you and how did you know what school you would be accepted into? So I spoke to Orlando Watson. That was the name of the student that Miss Harris was helping. I remember he said it was done with the SAT exam. I hadn't heard of the SAT. I was looking for scholarships in Jamaica, Cuba, China, and like just things that would pop up on the internet and you're looking also. I had to get something that was a full ride, right? Because there was no way I could pay for college. So I remember when I spoke to Orlando, he was like, I asked him, well, you know, for this SAT, what do you need to do? And he's like, well, you have about, I think, two or three books that you need to learn. One of them is math. And um, he had finished with that. And so he just went in his bag and gave me the book and said, you know, you can start with that. <laughs> and then he gave me the email address of Miss Harris. And I emailed her uh, like a short blurb about myself, like my motivation, what I want to do. Um, it wasn't like a formal thing at the time. And she responded to my email. And so we communicated maybe over a thousand emails back and forth about, you know, are you studying for the exam? Did you register for the exam? How do you register? How are you getting to Kingston to take the exam? And eventually she was learning at the time how to apply to the school as much as I was learning. So we learned together. You know, you need a waiver if you can for the application because it might cost. You have to get recommendation letters. You have to take an exam, like I mentioned, and you have to find the school. So I remember at first, Looking for the schools was kind of like random. And to make the, a long story short, I think at some point, Miss Harris started to call the school on our behalf saying, hey, you know, I have these great kids. By that time, it was four of us. I have these great kids. They really want to go to college. They have the grades from the SAT. You know, the only thing is they need like a full ride. Is that a possibility? What scores do you need? What else do you need them to do? So she advocated for us in that way. And on the ground in Jamaica, we would just, you know, try to learn what we could about the process, go online. I think at the time we were using Common Application, something called Common App. You could apply to multiple schools at the same time. And we became like a team of four. So like one person would go and say, okay, we need recommendation letters. How are we going to get it? We need to approach these people. Never in our life before we asked for recommendation letters for anything. We're in high school. Mm -hmm. One other person would look and say, okay, you know, the SAT dates are this time and the application dates for this school is this. So we need to all take the exam by this date. Um, another person might have a computer and we all huddle around that computer because one person had it and we had to take turns. So people were sharing their resources. I really like a community among ourselves as students. That was unusual in itself when I think back now because at the time, there was so limited resources that people tended to, if they learn about something, they tend to keep it to themselves. 
because they're afraid somehow that the resource might go away or the opportunity might might miss them. Mm-hmm. But when each of us learned of the opportunity that we could do this, we just came together and tried to work with each other's strengths. So I think I still appreciate that process today. It gives me some faith in there is a lot of good. And if people are in the right environment, they can uplift each other and, and achieve things together. We don't have to compete against each other. There's enough for everybody. That is so powerful. That's one of my big mantras is that there is enough for us in the world. We don't have to fight each other. We don't have to hate each other. There is abundance acres of diamonds around and there's enough for all of us and it's yeah. just so powerful to hear you sharing that story of how the four of you worked together and supported each other sharing one laptop yeah. this yeah. is life for many students outside of the united states outside of the developed world right yeah so i remember we were sharing one laptop and then you had the opportunity to use like you know, there's these things called internet cafes. I think they have them here still, but it's like a dying thing in the U.S. It's not so common. People don't need to use an internet cafe, right? Most people. Yes, but yes. There's an internet cafe in Port Antonio. There are several of them. and They still have them now. And you pay $50 in Jamaican, like some cents, I think, in U.S. dollars. 50 Jamaican dollars is a lot for a student at a time. Because I remember I was getting, I think, $120 from my parents for lunch. And with that, you could get something called a patty, which is like a, like an empanada or it is meat stuffed inside of a crust. And you could get maybe a box drink. It'd be left over with like $10 out of the 120 And I would save that $10 because every day you, my mom gives me $120 in addition to the bus fare. By the end of the week, I'll have enough money that I could pay to that internet cafe the the fifty dollars on a Saturday or something or on the Friday afternoon. So mm-hmm. I could get half an hour of time on the computer. So I remember when I went the first time and paid, usually in IT class they show you 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 sit in front of the computer and already the internet browser is up and you just you know start typing. When I went to this cafe and I paid and I sat down, there was no one, no teacher over your shoulder to say, Oh, if you don't see the internet browser up, it's hidden inside of, you know, the Windows key. If you press that and it pops up and you can click. So I remember I spent the first 10 minutes searching the whole screen, like, where is this thing? And I was embarrassed to ask the guy that was over this thing, um, you know, where is the browser? Because you're in high school, you should know this. So I remember I found it and then I had to go. I didn't know how to type well. So I was typing with one finger, one by one. I did that for about a month and got really quick with learning how to type because remember you're paying that money you saved all week for half an hour. And in that half an hour, you have to, you know, look up stuff about the schools, put it into a word document, print it out so you can show the others or so you can have it to refer to later on. So you have to get quick. You have to, you have to learn really quickly. And so these things you remember when things get tough, uh, when you're working in, as a PhD, it's like you're working in the dark, right? You don't know when you'll end. You, you're working to find new knowledge. So there is no date that stamps that says you will find new knowledge this day. You have to keep working until you find it, right? And so that can be a tough mental challenge for many people. But whenever things got a little bit tough, I'll remember how everything started. It doesn't compare to how hard I worked to get to this point to be a scientist. 
So then it just made the process pale in comparison. And that gave me strength to keep going forward. Mm, wow. So were all four of you applying to four separate schools or the same school? How was that working out for all four of you in the beginnings of the program? So in the beginning, we all just, like I said, everyone is doing independent research, right? So everyone had a task, but everyone still had to look for schools. There was some schools that you'd go and you'd see the tuition is really high for us. Remember, we can't pay even a thousand US dollars. That's too much. Where's it going to come from? So we'd look and see if the website says, you know, like scholarship available. Is it need-based scholarship? Is it merit-based scholarship? And we're trying to get unmarried because you won't be able to get need-based scholarship as a non-immigrant, right? So you look at that and then you're saying, okay, they want this much SAT or ACT score. They want this GPA. They want this background and they want also a lot of extracurricular, well-rounded student who can also write an essay and, and make a good story. So you might find that, but then, you know, like Charlene was another student that was there, Charlene Brown. And she might come and find another university where the tuition is a bit lower. They have half scholarship. You know, it's, you see this diversity of things. So we'll pull together the list of universities. And Miss Harris is also looking for universities. And every day she'll send an excited email. Like I spoke to this person and, you know, you really need to get on this application. Submit it as soon as possible because they're looking for your application. So with all that, it was just everyone looking for universities. And in the end, it distilled down to a few. So if I found one and I applied, I'd tell the others and vice versa, right? So no one is applying to anything that no one else hasn't had the opportunity to apply to as well. And remember, this is all happening in the middle of the regular school semester in Jamaica, which you're, we're not getting any assistance to how to find universities and how to apply for um, college the only thing our curriculum is concerned with right now is taking the external Caribbean exam. At the time, it was CAPE, our Caribbean Advanced Proficiency Exam. And so all the resources of the school is focused on preparing us for this external exam because it's a big deal for the school. It also will allow qualify you to go to the local university there. So you have to do well on this exam as well. But we're doing this extra thing outside, right? We're looking up schools in the U.S., we're taking their exams and there's no extra space in the curriculum for that. It's rigorous because we were all doing the sciences at the time. It was like taking calculus one, calculus two, physics one, physics two, advanced proficiency exams, right? So we did all that and balanced it. Um, some did better than others in balancing. But eventually we applied to all these schools and I have to say the majority came back rejected, right? I remember my parents would go to the post office and they're so used to just asking for their mail. So they'll say, you know, mail for Mr. and Mr. Strawn. And they'll come home with their mail. And I remember I asked my dad one day, I was like, dad, do you ask? Because my last name is different from theirs, right? These small things that you're, you're not conscious of because, you know, they're your parents, you're their son. So they just, it just gets lost somehow. And I said, mm -hmm. ask for Eslop when you go. And he asked and he came back with this stack of 20 letters Wow. That had been accumulating that I hadn't heard from the universities from. <laughs> right? That's so. And then I sat down and I opened each one. And each one, I remember my heart was beating really fast because it represented an opportunity. I just wanted to go to school, right? I just wanted to have a chance to become a scientist one day. And this was the only path I could see at the time. And it was on a chance. So I opened the first letter. They all start the same way. 
like when it's like this, right? It says, you know, um, we had a lot of applications and, you know, we really couldn't take you or something to that effect, right? There's a lot of them, really more than they expect. Unfortunately, you weren't one of the ones to be picked. And by the time you get to the third, fourth letter, because you never see these statements before and you think, oh, maybe they really considered my stuff and I'm really considered. And they're saying I was in the top stack, but, you know, there were too many and they didn't pick. But you saw it's like a like no matter the university is more or less similar statement. So you start to get used to this kind of way from the American universities. And I think out of that stack of 20, there was one that said, Hey, congratulations. It started with congratulations, right? Blah, blah, blah. You've been accepted with scholarship. And I would say like $2,000. You're one of few that we've selected. And then you look at the tuition really quickly and it's like $50,000. I'm like, mm. okay. <laughs> so you had these heart sinking moments. And you have, I remember you have to get up. Each of us, you know, like we all went through this separately. We didn't bring the, the letters to school together. And we all got these things. And then you have to get up and go in the next day and look for more schools and keep going with the same vigor as if you weren't rejected before. You have to go with the same strength and drive and enthusiasm and smile because you have to request things from people as well. You're going to ask for another letter to yet another school from the guidance counselor or from a teacher again. They don't quite understand what you're doing, but you're also depending on their good faith and your reputation as well as a student, whatever reputation you have at such a young time. So we did all that. And eventually, Miss Harris sent an email one afternoon saying, there's this school called Claflin University. It's an HBCU. Because we were at the time, we were applying to PWIs and HBCUs. But I think majority were PWIs because it was just the way randomly when you're looking for universities in the U.S. For listeners who may not understand what PWI is and some of the other acronyms, if you don't mind, yeah, what, yeah. what is PWI? So it's um, predominantly white universities, and then okay. HBCU is historically black college or university. So, okay. yeah, the, at these universities, typically PWI will have majority white students, and traditionally that's how it is. And universities are becoming more diverse now. Almost everyone has a diversity statement, and so on. The same for HBCUs, like. At, at a time in America's history, there was this segregation, right? And uh, one of the only places Black or people of color could get an education um, was HBCUs. And they're a dying breed now and they need funding. And we try to make more awareness about that because HBCUs accept everyone now, the same as PWI now. But still, if you walk on an HBCU campus, it's ma- still majority students of color and faculty are also students of color. So it's also a safe space. You know, transition from going from a high school, going into a university setting, living by yourself or many students by themselves, whether American or not, for the first time. That environment protects students in most cases because you're in a cocoon protected from the rest of the world and you're trained. At least at Claflin, I remember we were trained on formal wear, etiquette. There were self-help things. Um, there were certain conversations that you have just openly that you learn later on. It's not so open when you go to other institutions. And you just take it for granted that you feel so accepted and you're working towards your degree and everyone is happy for you. And then you go off into a wider world after you had this protected period at an HBCU. So that's how it went for me. Going from Jamaica, I didn't jump straight into like the rest of society in the US, I think. I think if you look up on the map and you look at Claflin, it's in the South, it's in South Carolina. 
It's in a rural town called Orangeburg. There's not much to do in Orangeburg. The only thing, most exciting thing to do is to focus on your studies. You go there and then the majority of students are students of color, African-American students, as this designation goes. And it didn't feel like a big jump for me in terms of questioning who I was around. Because if you're coming from Jamaica, most people are dark-skinned, are black, right? And so you go to an HBCU and most people are like that. I didn't have to think about that. And I didn't realize how much of a difference that makes because it just seemed like an easier transition. And you just focus on the studies and the town is quiet. So, yeah. Wow, that's great that you had that experience, that transition. I'm learning as I'm listening to you because I came in and went into what you now call a PWI university. It was later on that I actually learned about HBCUs and some of the benefits that comes for a person of Afro descent or for other persons of color, the safety that a place like that might provide. It's great to listen to you talk about your personal experience. So how did things go over the four years that you were there? Is it Kaftan, C-A-F-T-A-N? It's Claflin, C-L-A-F-L-I-N, so Claflin University. Claflin, um, okay. Yeah, they call, call ourselves the Panthers, right? So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Panther Pride and all of that. So how did it go? Four years, Claflin. I think a picture that's coming to my mind now is, remember, we never met Miss Jean Harris, right? It was just In person, the- right? It was just emails. Wow. Just emails. My parents didn't know. My parents saw me leave. All the other students, their parents saw them leave as well. Go in the morning at 7 a.m., go to school, and then come home. At least for some of us, we came home like at 12 midnight, 1 a.m. sometimes. So, of course, parents start to get worried. Like, you're going to school at 7. School finishes at 2.30 in the afternoon. What child in high school is coming home at 1 a.m. saying they're doing schoolwork? Right? So, there was also these kind of Parents had to have faith in in us, like in the product that they were producing, right? The product that they made. So I think we have to congratulate our parents on giving us that much room and trusting us that, hey, you know, I raised a good child. Child says, that, you know, he has to do this or she has to do this. And they're really working hard. It's the only place where Wi-Fi is because when we got home, most of us didn't have Wi-Fi at home. So there's some spotty Wi-Fi at the university. We all sharing one laptop sometimes, you get it. And then we're speaking to this person online. I think in the first few months, parents didn't have any idea that we were doing that. Then eventually, I think Miss Harris spoke to them when things got more of a reality. Like you might be leaving the country. You need to at least speak to this person that has been talking to your child for a while. And so when we left, I think it was all for all of us our first time leaving the country. So, and we were leaving the country by us. Our parents didn't come with any of us. I think we all left on the same flight, except for Orlando. He had a different flight, um, but the same day. Um, And we were going into Atlanta airport of all places. Like that's a huge airport. You have to take a train to get from one terminal. When we landed coming from normal Manly International Airport, a small airport in Jamaica. And that was like a big experience going through that for the first time and then coming out and then going into somewhere where... There are all these weird sounds, people walking around seeming to know where they're going. And we come straight off the plane first time. Me, two girls, and Orlando landing like an hour later. And we we're supposed to find Jean Harris. Never seen. I think one of the students, it was Roshana Blackwood. She she looked her up one time, so she had an idea of what she might look like. 
and we had a phone number to call when we got there, right? So, but you I had remember, no phone, right? Exactly. I'm thinking you don't have a phone. That's what I'm getting to. There's no signal. <laughs> we have exactly is if 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 any of us had a phone, we did not have international minutes. So I said to them, you know, stay here. I'll have to go like try and find a phone. So they would stay together, and I'd just ask someone to borrow their phone. So I went to you know this nice guy and asked him, "Can I borrow your phone? I just need to make a short call." He's like, "Yeah, yeah, sure." And I call Miss Harris's phone, and then I'm on the phone talking, and she's trying to tell me where she is. And I turn around and I'm walking, and someone taps me on the shoulder, and I'm in a different country. I look at this lady that is tapping me on the shoulder, and I was like, "No, no, I'm fine." And then I look over her shoulder while I'm on the phone and I see Roshana and Sherlene in the background laughing, like putting their hands over their mouth, right? Because that was Miss Harris. <laughs> then, so then she, when I turn around and she's hugging me and I hug her back and, I, and she'll tell you today that what I said was, if this isn't Miss Harris, this is really weird. <laughs> and she laughed. So that was the moment at the airport. And we all, like, it was me, her, Roshana, Shirley, and we now set out to go find Orlando. And you you learn later on that Orlando the pioneer, right? He's the one that went off and hit computer science. He's working for Microsoft now. So there's always something different about Orlando. So he came in because we couldn't quite figure out why he couldn't take the same flight with us. But, you know, it's Orlando doing Orlando things. So he went um, to the same airport. We had to take, like, drive to some other part of the airport and then pick him up, find him, pick him up. And then we went to a Jamaican lady's house, Miss Joan Harris, which is the sister of Norman Harris, which is Miss Harris's husband. And she yes. opened her house to us, four strangers, and we were supposed to sleep there for the night in Georgia. And I remember it was strange because that's when you learn what, like in some communities, I think there's this things that control how your house looks so i remember that was weird because in jamaica like you build your house your house looks kind of unique but in this community all the houses look the same it was like how do you find your house when you leave and you come back like you might get mixed up and i remember that night when we were supposed to go to sleep i was looking out on these houses and i didn't want to sleep fighting the sleep because i remember i dreamed of this moment so much over and over like because we worked so long through the night, this is over a year of trying to find a school, trying to find an, this opportunity and knowing that the alternative was falling flat on your face, right? So I remember I would have many nights where I'd go to bed, dream that I'm in college and then wake up and I wasn't, I was still there trying to find schools. Mm -hmm. So I remember when this came through, went through the flight, I was like, this is the most elaborate dream. But if it's a dream, I'm not waking up from this one. I'm not going to go to sleep. Because that's the only way you'll wake up <laughs> if you go to sleep. <laughs> so I didn't sleep that night. And then we drove to Kaflin the next day. And slowly, it became more and more real. Unless this is still a dream. And I'm just talking to you now. <laughs> wow, 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 wow. <laughs> the thing that comes to mind is you had to go through the CXC process to get into Titchfield, right? I'm going back a little bit to kind of get a sense. No, you did the way the Jamaican system at that time was in terms of education is a distilling kind of system. So mm -hmm. you start with like, just imagine a funnel or a filter and there's like a bunch at the top, right? Like in the, at the top of the filter. And then there's some that come through and it comes through a little by little. So in GSAT, it's like a kind of like weeding you out. 
you take a grade six achievement test, which depending on how well you do that, then you can get what you call a first choice or second choice. So your first choice is your top choice to go to the high school. So for Teachfield, it had a traditional high school. There's these things called traditional high schools and non-traditional ones. And people try to go to the traditional high schools because like the name suggests, it has a history. There's, you know, people that came through that are famous or went on to do things. There's some prestige in going to these schools. So Titchfield mm. was the most prestigious one in the rural area that we right. could go to. And so typically for someone in, in Portland, they would put Titchfield because it would be close to where you live as well. Because, you know, you have to go home to your parents every day. And if that's your top choice, then you have to have the grades to beat out everyone that might want to go there. And everyone wants to go there, presumably, right? Then your second choice might be another school in the area. And then third choice, and then eventually you just get placed. If you don't do well, you just get placed somewhere that they need students. So GSAT, we all would have gone through that. And then that's what allowed me to go to Titchfield. You get, I got my first choice. And then when you're in Titchfield, you work your four or five years towards something called CXC, or Caribbean Examination Council exam. And that is what will give you like your basic high school diploma. And then if you finish that, and do well, like you're in the top percentile, you can apply to go to something called sixth form, which is the advanced level of CAPE, which is Caribbean Advanced Proficiency Exam. And you do two years of that. The first year you take, we're predominantly science group. So we did physics, chemistry, math, Caribbean studies, I think one other thing. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So these things, and if you do those, then of course you're in a small group of students who have the the CAPE, and then you can apply to go to the University of Western Indies, University of Technology, or some of the other universities we have in Jamaica. And that's what you're on a streamline of doing if you are strong enough and capable enough and savvy enough to go through the system and remain in the top set of students to get the choices that you make. Right. Yeah, so when I was there in high school, I think I did the CXC and I left after high school. But I think they had something called the A-levels, O-levels. Yeah, <laughs> that's what that was. When I think with A-levels, you did all of the courses in one year. So instead of having physics one and two separated into two years, you had just physics and you did all of that. I think you spent two years studying and then you took the exam once. Whereas with us, we spent one year studying, took physics one, then spent the next year studying and took physics two. I think that's how, it. How lucky. We took all of our exams at the end of our yep. high school years, all of our exam within a, yep. a one or two week period. Yep. And then you wait to get all of your yep. scores. And I mean, the stress exactly. is unimaginable, okay? <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. Wow. Wow. So you've been on quite a journey. I am so intrigued. And um, (laughs) so you you get to Atlanta, you spend the night, you don't want to go to sleep. Then you, Miss Harris drives you to your school. What were the schools for the other four? I went to Claflin as well. Miss Harris wanted to keep us together. It had been such a good ride. I think at the start, it was just get, get into a school, you know what I mean? And get a full ride. But eventually, I think one person had one other option. And Claflin was so open to listening to us, to going the extra mile, to paying attention to not just that we were pulling the grades, but also what it would mean to have more international students on their campus streamlined in this way. And if we came with it with the seriousness that 
like for example, when I had to take the SAT, like I studied for it for one week, right? I learned about the exam, then got the book. Then we had to have, I skipped these midterm exams that we would usually have in, in the middle of the regular curriculum, right? Because that was still going on. I skipped that because like, even if I do well on these exams, I still can't pay to go to college in Jamaica. You know what I mean? So I was like, let me take a chance. And so I went one week, studied, took the exam. So I think whoever is in the back office at Claflin was listening to these efforts that Miss Harris would relate to them and say, there's something special about this group. And if there isn't something special, at least give them a chance and they'll work really hard. And I'm literally tearing up, like listening to you, because I can't even imagine making, having those choices on the table, you know, like choosing not to sit your local exam. And it it would mean something for you once you miss those. Yeah. But you, you took faith to take the other option. Right. Faith faith is a weird word. Faith is the evidence of things unseen, right? So in that way, yes. But we tried to rationalize things like when I try to, because we try to motivate each other, like the students that are coming beyond, because right now the organization is at a place where students help each other. And sometimes we try to explain that you have to look at the situation as a whole step outside of yourself and pretend as if you're looking down on you sitting there and what you're trying to work towards. See the timeline before it's there. Use your imagination. It's the closest thing you have to predicting the future, right? So when we stepped out and looked at it, those midterm exams were supposed to be an assessment, an internal assessment at the school for how well, you know, the the teachers were doing to prepare you and also served as a way to remind you, hey, in in four or five more months, you're taking this external exam so it's like a measuring stick of where you might be and how much more effort you need to put towards this exam i see so so that internal grade would if we failed what i thought about was hey if i fail this all i have to put up with is the embarrassment of now in that my teachers didn't expect this they i'm usually there for my exams do well you know, other peers that look up to you might not fully understand it, but before other people can see it for you, sometimes you have to see it for yourself. And so you just look at it and you say, hey, I'll skip the midterm. I'll make up for it when I'm back. Like you, you don't get a chance to take it. You just get a zero, right? But <laughs> you take the exam and then all this means is that my measuring stick, I have to just go make it. Like after I take the exam, the SAT and I come back, I have to try to find out what happened in that week try to get the, the tests, maybe just do them on my own time. No one will mark them because I missed the official time and be satisfied in myself that I'm still preparing for this external exam. So don't sabotage yourself for by not taking your A-levels, right? But along the way, you have to recognize the biggest skill, I think, is recognizing the moment where there's a transition. And if you recognize that moment and the importance of it, you can prioritize and then recover everything else. And so that's a skill you learn. And then eventually you have to do that all throughout your PhD if you, if you do a PhD. And you have to do that all throughout life. Everything is important. It's just the moment it happens. The timing is everything. So you get to the university, all four of you, you guys are getting settled in. And you mentioned that they really put some effort into catering to the four of you and making sure that you guys were cared for and were safe and that you, you, know, you studied and could focus on studying. 
it wasn't just for us. We had a special attention in the first week because um, because of the way we came in, right? There's no way to ignore that. People wanted to see us in the administrative office, right? They heard about us. It's like a myth. And we come in and it's the beginning of the story. No one knows what will happen. And mm. so we see, especially some administrative personnel like Dr. Leroy Durant, Miss Carolyn Snell, Dr. Wright, is the provost there. They were there to see us because um, Dr. Wright is from Jamaica and Dr. Durant is from Trinidad. So there's that Caribbean kind of, let me give you an introduction to, you know, to South Carolina, to Claflin. Hey, you know, we're here if you ever need anything. And then we go through the regular orientation like the other students. I think with Claflin, except for those, I think, couple of days when we met those administrators, and they always had an eye, an eye on what we were doing, Claflin itself kept a special interest in all the students that were there. Yeah. So that's what's unique about the Claflin. Okay. So shout out. Shout out to the university, right, for taking yeah. care of you guys. next time for part two of this episode. Tune in next week for another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America. As this is a new podcast, we welcome any and all support. If you have not done so already, subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also support us by completing a five-star rating and review and sharing our podcast with your friends, family, and circle of influence.